What a magnificent song. Praise God. All I have is Christ. Well, uh, Mike and, and worship team and believers here at Bethany Community Church, I have, I have missed worshiping with you. And I, I, I knew I had missed worshiping with you. And, and Ben mentioned the same thing for his family who was gone last week. But I had no idea how much I had missed uh, worshiping with you until we began uh, singing together and, and, and praising our God together. I, I loved being at, at Living Hope two weeks ago. Great to see the brothers and sisters there and enjoyed uh, being in, in Texas with my family last week and seeing my sister get married. Uh, but but I've, I've missed, uh, missed worshiping our, our God and Savior together as a family here at Bethany Community Church. Excited to be uh, back uh, going through the Gospel of Luke again. Uh, excited about our, our chance to, to come together uh, this evening. And uh, this evening we're going to be at Camp Good News for those of you with, with children who'd like to be part of our our spring musical, encourage you to come out to that. They're just beginning uh, the, 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 the time of preparation for our, our musical. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, whether or not we can eat bacon, uh, wear cotton polyester blended clothing, and, and get a tattoo. We're going to be talking about the uh, Old Testament law and how it applies in the life of the believer today. So I encourage you to, to come out and, uh, and enjoy our, our time together this, 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 uh, this evening. Uh, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Also, you should know, uh, on Tuesday, some exciting, uh, something exciting happened. Our church uh, closed on the land that's surrounding the farmhouse. So we are now uh, the owners of, well, the stewards, I guess, would be a better way to put it. We're the stewards of the 70 acres of land that God has provided our church. And we're also the stewards of a, of a debt that we owe the bank. And so we're excited about those, and God has graciously provided, and we believe that we can uh, pay off this loan quickly if we continue to, to uh, give generously to the Lord's work here. And we're excited about the future ministry opportunities that exist on that, that property. Well, we're here in Luke chapter 7, and uh, for those of you who uh, may be visiting with us the first time or have uh, been gone for a little while and are back again this morning, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a, a context to where we are. We've been studying the life of Christ, and we were just in Luke chapter 6 where we saw Jesus give the Sermon on the Plain. We've talked about kingdom ethics and how a person whose heart is rightly situated with God, a person whose heart has been transformed by the gospel, understands uh, ethics, how to behave toward one another. Jesus has just finished talking about that. And now we're coming to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be spending the next four weeks or so in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, there's a question that is asked explicitly or implicitly in several ways, several times throughout the chapter. And the question is, who is Jesus? John the Baptist's messengers are going to come and, and ask Jesus point blank, who are you? At the end of the chapter, people are going to ask, who is this guy that, that can even forgive sins? Over and over again, this question is going to be asked, who is Jesus? And several answers are going to be given. Here, this morning, as we look at the story of the centurion, the centurion is going to say that Jesus is one with authority. Jesus is going to assure that uh, John the Baptist and his disciples that he is the one that they've been waiting for, the promised Messiah. Some people are going to give wrong answers. Uh, Jesus is going to mention that some people claim that he's a, a glutton and a drunkard. Some are going to declare that he's a great prophet. Throughout the chapter, the question is going to be asked, who is Jesus? Answers are going to be given that help us begin to understand who Jesus is. And what we're going to see is that the proper response to Jesus is to believe in him, to place one's faith in Jesus. 
that's the right response to Jesus. That's what we're going to see as we go through Luke chapter 7 together over the next few weeks. That's the context for where we are as we look at the story of the centurion in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And let me help uh, Alyssa out, who's uh, doing the PowerPoint. We haven't really talked. How are you doing this morning, Alyssa? You doing okay? Good. I'm doing well, thank you. Um, although I, I'm realizing I haven't talked to you yet. What we're going to do this morning, Alyssa and everyone else, is we're going to read the text together. We're going to stand together in a minute, read the text. Then we're going to dive right into talking about the story. Then after I finish talking about the story, we're going to look at two uh, main truths from the story about the marvelous faith that the centurion has. Okay? Sound good? Let's uh, stand together and read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Luke writes this, Luke 7, verse 1, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us, our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and said, and then turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. You may be seated. Father, as we turn our attention to your word more closely now, we pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that you'd give us hearts of faith, a marvelous faith that honors you and humbles us. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Our story begins here in verse 1 of Luke 7, and what's happened is Jesus has just finished giving this sermon on the plain. He's said all these things, and then the text tells us in verse 1 that Jesus entered Capernaum. And you and I have been in the city of Capernaum together before as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. Capernaum, remember, is situated on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's a city that has a major trade route that goes right above it. It has a thriving fishing community. In fact, in that fishing community, Peter and James and and, uh, John and and uh, Andrew all have the, a fishing business that they do together. And it's in Capernaum or near Capernaum that Jesus calls these men to, to be his disciples. It's also in Capernaum that he calls Matthew to follow him. Several of Jesus' disciples then are, are from Capernaum. Their families are in Capernaum. And Jesus and his disciples spend a great deal of time in Capernaum. And in Luke chapter 4, we saw that Jesus was in a synagogue and he was teaching and doing miraculous things. And, and Capernaum seems to serve as like a home base for Jesus and his disciples as they're there in the, the region of Galilee. In Capernaum, then, there's this trade route, there's a toll booth, there is a synagogue. Also in the city of Capernaum, 
there is a Roman garrison. In this garrison, Roman soldiers are, are based and they serve as kind of a police force to the region. They keep the, the uh, major trade routes safe. They enforce Roman peace in the region. And these, these soldiers that are stationed there, there's uh, probably around 100, maybe a little bit less. They earn about 75 denarii a year. That's the Roman garrison. In verse 2 of Luke 7, we're introduced to a centurion. This centurion would have been in charge of these men in the garrison. He was not a Jew, even though he's there in Israel. He was not a Jew. He's a Gentile. In fact, he's probably not a Roman citizen, but this centurion knows that he, if he serves faithfully in this, this uh, office that he's been placed, for 25 years he earns his Roman citizenship. He's well off. He's not among the most wealthy people in the empire. He earns between 3,000 and 7,000 denarii a year. And so this centurion is stationed there in Capernaum, and his job is to oversee this garrison that's in Capernaum. We also see something else interesting throughout this story about the centurion. The centurion has a very good relationship with the Jews, and at some point in his tenure there as centurion, he did something kind of remarkable. He helped build the synagogue for the Jews. He came in the area, had a good relationship with the Jews, and so he helped them build their synagogue. Now he said, well, he was just being politically shrewd. He knew that tensions were sometimes high between Jews and Gentiles, especially Roman soldiers and Jews, and so he was being politically shrewd by helping them, them build their, their synagogue. And, and perhaps there's an element of that in the story as well, but as you look at the text, as you read through, and you see about the relationship that he had with these Jewish elders, you see that there's probably something more to him building the synagogue than just trying to be politically shrewd. Some of you have traveled overseas and lived in foreign countries. You find that whenever a person goes to another country, sometimes they can become very immersed in that culture in which they're living. And the longer they're there and the greater appreciation that they have for the culture, the more they begin to, to take on some of the ways and appreciate certain aspects about that culture. And what I think is remarkable about, remarkable about this story is that this centurion, he comes from most definitely a polytheistic background. That is, his, as he grew up, he worshipped many gods. He was in a culture that worshipped many gods. He comes into Capernaum, and as he serves as the centurion there in Capernaum, he doesn't become a Jew, but it seems that he may have become a God-fearer. He is exposed to the Jew, Jewish idea of God, this monotheism, and there's something appealing in it to him. And so, not only does he allow the Jews to practice the religion, which was, of course, allowed in the Roman Empire, but he encourages it. He not only permits it, but he encourages it. As he encourages them in their faith, he builds them their synagogue. That tells you something about the character of this centurion. Also in verse 2, we see that, as we're introduced to this centurion, that he's a man with a very significant problem. His problem is that he has a servant who's very valuable to him. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, as Matthew tells us about this story, he uses a word to describe this servant that could also be used to describe someone's son. This person was very valuable to the centurion. 
He was valuable not just in an economic sense, but in a relational sense. The centurion loves this servant very much. And we see in the Gospel of Matthew and here in the Gospel of Luke that this servant is in grave danger. He is on the point of death. Matthew tells us that he's, he's paralyzed and in great pain. And the centurion stands over the bed of his servant who's in great pain. He sees him unable to move, and almost certainly he calls the physicians. They look at him. They tell him, look, there, there's nothing we can do. The centurion, he's a man with authority, and, and yet he, he can't command these doctors. Try harder. He sees that his servant is on the verge of death, and he is overwhelmed with concern for this one whom he loves so dearly. That's his problem. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but it tells us that he heard about Jesus, verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus. Now remember, Jesus operates here in Capernaum. His disciples are all here from Capernaum. Their, their families are, or many of his disciples are from Capernaum. Their families are in Capernaum. And so it's not crazy, of course, that the centurion would hear about Jesus and his ministry. He hears that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue that he helped build. We, remember, we see that at the end of Luke chapter 4. His, uh, he is performing miracles. He's casting out demons. And the centurion hears about Jesus. And what's interesting in the story is from the moment he hears about Jesus, he is convinced that Jesus has the ability to heal his servant. In other words, we don't see the centurion uh, leave his servant's bedside, go out there, hear about Jesus, and go, well, you know, I tried these doctors. It didn't work. I, I, I'll, I guess I'll try this Jesus guy. What's it going to do? It's not going to make him worse. The guy's paralyzed in terrible pain, writhing around in pain. He's about to die. I'll try Jesus. No, from the moment that the centurion hears about Jesus, he's convinced that Jesus has the ability and the authority to heal his servant, but he still has a problem. You say, what's the problem? He's the centurion. Go get Jesus. If you or I were the centurion, perhaps we wouldn't see this as an issue. Maybe you and I would say, look, I'm a centurion. I'm in charge of this region. You're operating Jesus here in Capernaum. You're teaching in a synagogue here in Capernaum. And, and I'm going, as the arm of the Roman government, you're under my jurisdiction. I'd like you to come in here and look at my servant. Or this centurion is a very, a, uh, he, he's at least good with interpersonal relationships. He has a good relationship with these Jewish elders. Maybe he thinks, uh, you or I in his situation would think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of work the system here, and on the basis of my charm and appeal, I'm going to talk to Jesus and ask him to come look at my servant. Or the centurion, if you or I are the centurion, we might think, look, I've done some nice things in the past, some good deeds, some good works. I built the synagogue that Jesus is teaching in every Saturday kind of owes me a little bit, right? And on the basis of our good deeds, past, present, future, we'd go to Jesus and we'd say, look, uh, Jesus, I built this synagogue. I'm a good dude. Come on, will you come look at my servant, please? But the centurion doesn't look at it that way. The centurion, again, remember, he's been in Capernaum, he's been influenced by Jewish thought, and Jewish thought is this, a person that God is working through in miraculous ways is a person that's in a, on a different plane than other people. Remember in the Gospel of John, John chapter 9, one of my favorite stories, there's this man who's been born blind, and Jesus heals him, and the Pharisees are really torqued off, and they say, look, we'd like you to tell us, they say to the man born blind, 
admit that this Jesus guy is a sinner. And the man born blind goes, are, are you kidding me? This is a guy that healed a man who was born blind, me. And we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. That's Jewish thought. They're right. And so the centurion hears all the things that Jesus is doing. He recognizes that Jesus has a close relationship with this God that he's begun to understand through the Jewish culture, the Jewish teachings. And he realizes, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm the centurion. Sure, I've done some nice things for the Jews, but if this guy has that kind of relationship with God, I've got nothing to offer him. And that's the problem the centurion faces. He sees his servant there. He stands over his bedside. The servant is in pain. He's paralyzed. He's about to die. He's got Jesus over there, and he believes that Jesus has the ability to heal his servant, but there's nothing that he can do, he thinks, to get Jesus, to compel Jesus to to come and heal his servant. So he does the only thing he knows to do. The text tells us in Luke chapter 7 here that he calls to the elders, the Jewish elders. And he calls the elders of the Jews because he rightly recognizes that the elders of the Jews know the things of God. They are kind of his intermediary between him and God, and they must have this good relationship with Jesus, and so he asks the elders to go on his behalf and ask Jesus to heal his servant. And the Jewish elders do it. Why? Why did the Jewish elders go to Jesus? Well, clearly they had a good relationship with the centurion. They they like him personally, but remember, we're in a culture in which obligatory ethics is practiced. Remember, we've just looked at Luke chapter 6 about quid pro quo, I do to you because you do to me. I help people that are in positions of authority. The Jewish elders go to Jesus because they owe the centurion. They love him, yes. They like him, yes. But their words betray that they're still operating under the ethical system that Jesus has just condemned in his teaching. And the elders go to Jesus, and they don't do it half-heartedly. They they participate fully in this entreaty. Look what it says. It says in verse 4, they came to Jesus. They pleaded with him earnestly. They they pleaded. They they, uh, asked with, 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 with intensity, and they asked him earnestly. But listen to what they say as they come to Jesus. They say, he is worthy. The Greek word there is axios. It, it means to have worth or value inherently. And the Jewish elders say this centurion is axios. He, he's worthy. He has this value. Therefore, you should come to him. There's worth in this centurion that should compel you to come. What's his worth? Well, they tell him this. He loves our nation, verse 5, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. Centurion, worthy to have you come to him because of what he's done, and Jesus comes. Now, how does the centurion know what's happened? The text doesn't tell us, but perhaps the elders leave Jesus. They arrive at the centurion's house ahead of Jesus and say, Centurion, we got some great news for you. It worked out well. Jesus is on his way. The centurion says, I I can't believe it. He's on his way. He's coming here. And Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we took care. We we did a number. We told him how worthy you are and how how great you are. And the centurion goes, you did what? 
the centurion grasps the character of God and the ministry of Jesus better than the Jews did. The Jews leave, the centurion gets that, that pit, that, that feeling, the pit of his stomach that you, you do whenever like a social faux pas has been committed, right? It's like when you're, you're in high school and, and your, your mom brings out your baby pictures for all your friends to see. It, it, it just kind of starts to feel a little bit awkward here. I, now, for those of you who don't know, I married my high school sweetheart. And it is, uh, you know, obviously, uh, obviously, I'm very glad I did that. She's very glad I did that, right, sweetie? Um, but there is a downside. You're, that, when you marry your high school sweetheart, it means your in-laws knew you when you were in high school, okay? And so that's why I had to move 800 miles away to do ministry and, and, and to live, right? So you're, you're engaged in, you have, the centurion has that, that feeling you have in that pit of your stomach when, when like a social faux pas has been committed. He's like, oh, this is awkward. He gets his friends, guys, come here, guys, come here. Whew. Okay. Go to Jesus, and this is what you say to him. And here we come to the point of the story that I believe is the most important part of the story for us to understand the truth that Luke is, is trying to communicate through the story about Jesus' life. The friends leave the centurion. Jesus is close to the house, and look at what the centurions say on behalf of the centurion's friends say on behalf of the centurion. Lord, Lord, teacher, the sign of respect, don't, 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 don't trouble yourself. This isn't how I envisioned this playing out in my mind. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. Don't trouble yourself. For, why don't trouble yourself? Because I'm not worthy. I'm not axios. I don't have inherent worth. There's nothing within me that should compel you to even come under my roof, much less heal my servant. I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm not worthy. The centurion humbles himself and exalts Christ because he rightly recognizes the power and authority of Christ. And then he says this through his friends. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I know I don't have worth. That's why I didn't come to you in the first place, presumptuously. I understand, this is a remarkable thing too, is the centurion's friends and Jesus interact. I understand, he's saying, how authority works. I've got my superiors, and I've got people over whom I am superior. And when I say to a soldier go, we don't have a dialogue about it. He goes. And when I say to a soldier, come here, he doesn't say, can we talk about it? He comes. And when I say to a servant, do this, he does it. That's how authority works. And the implication is this. If I can do that, and I don't have the ability to even heal my servant, I can't even fathom the authority that you have. All you need to do, and it's interesting, the word he uses here, he says, just say the word and let my servant be healed. Let it happen. You can do it. My request was simply that you would let it happen. As he says those words, the centurion shows faith in Jesus, a faith that, ha that believes that Jesus has 
immense authority and a faith that demonstrates that he thinks he is nothing compared to Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? We haven't seen the crowd to this point in the story, but all of a sudden we see that there's a crowd. Jesus is standing here. He hears the words that the centurion's friends say to him, and it says that he, he marveled. He's astonished by, in a human sense. He looks at the crowd following him, and Jesus says, Look, guys, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found faith like this. Have I found such faith? Here's a centurion, a guy who grew up in a polytheistic culture, no knowledge of God, comes to Capernaum, hears about God, becomes a God-fearer, and understands the character of God and the ministry of Jesus more than the elders of Capernaum. Now, if I'm in the crowd following Jesus, I'd be like, what, what did he say? What happened? I missed it. What's so remarkable about, about this guy's faith? What did he do? Verse 10 almost seems like an afterthought to the story. It, it's not the main point of the story. It says the guys went back and, oh yeah, they, they found the servant was healed. Well, of course they did. But here's the question in the text, the question that these people might have had as they're following Jesus, and it's the question that I want us to think about this morning. What is so marvelous about this centurion's faith? What causes Jesus to marvel? What is it about faith that causes it to be so God-pleasing? There's two characteristics that we're going to look at this morning of a God-pleasing faith. The first characteristic is that it's humble, and then later we'll look at the second characteristic is that it exalts Christ. So a God-pleasing faith, first of all, humbles us. It humbles us. The Jewish elders, as they come to Jesus, what do they try to do? They try to exalt the centurion. They try to say, Jesus, we'd like to give you some incentive to come over and help this centurion. And their actions are completely normative. We live in, in a world of, of, of incentives, and, and, and we do things. We do things because of incentives. In fact, there's that, that question we ask in biblical counseling, right? Why do we do what we do? Well, what's the answer? Because we want what we want. <laughs> Why do I do what I do? Because I want what I want. It's true in, in every sphere of, of human activity. We do things because of incentive, because of wanting things. While I was on vacation uh, this past week, as we were traveling, I, I read a book called, several years old now, maybe some of you read it, it's called Freakonomics, Freakonomics by a guy named Stephen Levitt, and then a, another guy's a journalist, also named Stephen something or other else. And what they, the, the book is kind of interesting because what they do is they try to tease out relationships between seemingly unrelated events and, and why people do certain things. And they ask kind of just questions that you wouldn't have even thought of asking and try to get behind the incentives of things. One of the questions they ask in the book is, uh, why do so many drug dealers live with their moms? <laughs> Which I thought was kind of a good question. Why do so, if drug, if drug dealing is so lucrative, why do all these guys live with their moms? And what he found out is this, in addition to uh, being in danger of dying early, going to prison, uh, terrible hours, uh, being shot to death, in addition to all those benefits of being a drug dealer, uh, you also don't make a lot of money if you're just kind of one of the average drug dealers. What he found is, and that's why they live with their moms. 
But what he found is that the, the reason that they do this terrible job morally and, and just physically and all those other things is because there's an incentive to, to reach the top tier. And once you reach that, that top tier, then there's a chance of, of making a, a great deal of money. Incentives are a funny thing. There's, here's where it relates to the nonprofit world. Another professor at the University of Chicago tried to see how being attractive served as an incentive for nonprofit work. And so what he did is he had these uh, students come in, and there were about, I don't know, five or six of them, and he had people rank how attractive they were, scale of one to ten. And what he found were that the people who were of average attractiveness versus the people who were on average like a seven or an eight or seven, I think was what it, the study talked about, the people who were seven in, on a scale of one to ten earned like t- twice as much going door-to-door asking for solicitations as a person who's just of average, of average uh, beauty or handsomenessness. <laughs> Incidentally, we're going to be changing the way we do our offertory. Um, <laughs> only the attractive elders are now going to be praying for the offertory. So <laughs> just a uh, new policy there. No, why, why do we do things? Because of incentives. And it's funny how we work. So here's the deal. These, these elders do what we all do. We all have this belief that God needs some incentive. That he needs to find something within us to compel him to act. There needs to be, be something about us that, that makes him say, ah, that person is worthy of my attention and my action and, and to compel him to act. And it is a hard thing to humble oneself like the centurion and say, I got nothing. There's nothing within myself that I can show to God and say, this is why you should help me. This is why I should be saved. This is why you should take note of me. There's nothing. That's a hard truth to grasp, especially for a moral person like the Jewish elder, especially for the moral person at Bethany Community Church. A God-pleasing faith, though, comes to God and says, I have nothing. Let me give you three applications as we think about a God-pleasing faith that humbles us. And all these applica- some of these applications relate to how we uh, treat one another. A humble God-pleasing faith, first of all, a humble God-pleasing faith, number one, will compel you to care for those who are less fortunate than yourself. A humble, God-pleasing faith, a faith that humbles you, will cause you to look at others in your sphere of, of life and say, I want to help them. The centurion is mindful of his servant. He's, he's mindful of his own obligation to other people around him. And, and this is a hard truth sometimes for Christians to grasp. You know, our, our church is, uh, a lot of fun things are happening at our church right now. Uh, there's, there's a lot of new people that are coming into our church here at the end of summer and uh, those of us who have been here for a while need to very carefully look around us. And sometimes it's a little overwhelming because there's so many new people to meet and there's so many. But, you know, just this morning I, I stood in the hallway and I, I looked down and I saw little pockets of people standing by themselves, right? That's not the type of church we want to be. And I know it's hard and there's so many people to talk to, but a person who has a humble faith is a person who recognizes those who are in need, uh, uh, different types of needs. Uh, so a humble, God-pleasing faith, uh, first of all, compels us to care for others. Secondly, it should cause us, a humble, God-pleasing faith will, will cause us 
to shun racism and elitism. Luke is going to return more to this theme of Gentile-Jewish relationships as he goes to the book of Acts, but what we see here is that, that God's work in a person's life is, is not bound by, by cultural boundaries or, or racial boundaries. You and I are living in a very unique time in American history, and there are going to be some amazing, phenomenal cultural shifts that take place in our lives, and whether or not we have a humble faith in God is going to, res- going to affect how we respond to those who are different than ourselves, and we don't have time to delve into that this morning. We'll talk more about that as we go through other parts of Luke. Uh, Finally, uh, humble God-pleasing faith is going to cause you to reject quid pro quo ethics. That is, I do something, God does something back for me. I do something for someone, someone else does something back for me. The doxology that we've been singing, that new doxology from Romans chapter 11, it says, uh, you know, who is given to God that God should repay? Who becomes in God's who does God become indebted to? No one. A God-pleasing faith humbles us. That means it causes us to, to care for those who are less fortunate. It causes us to, to shun racism and elitism, cultural elitism, and it causes us to reject uh, retaliatory ethics or quid pro quo ethics. A God-pleasing faith, first of all, humbles us. Secondly, we see here in the story of the centurion, a God-pleasing faith exalts Christ. A God-pleasing faith exalts Christ. These are really two sides of the same coin, right? You can't exalt Christ without humbling yourself, and as you humble yourself, Christ is exalted. I was reading a, a commentator who does a very good job with some, some Greek uh, words, and, and I was kind of reading him to help me understand the Greek text a little bit better, and he, he had a very uh, disturbing statement as I read through his commentary on these verses. He said, now clearly... We understand that this story in Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10 is, has been exaggerated for effect. Clearly, God is not, or clearly, now people cannot be healed at great distances. Perhaps what happened is Jesus came and talked to the servant, and the servant felt psychologically better, and uh, that, then the, kind of, the legend kind of grew around the story. What ridiculousness, right? <laughs> that commentator reveals that he has a faith exactly opposite of the centurion. The commentator says, Christ isn't that powerful, right? Surely not. And exalts man and debases Christ. We're so arrogant sometimes, aren't we? We're so arrogant in, our under, in what we believe about, about God, and we put him so low sometimes. I read another book on, on vacation here. It's called, um, it's called 30 Second Theories takes 50 scientific theories and just kind of puts them like in 30-second synopsis. It takes me about 15 minutes to get through one. Uh, but the little 30-second snippets of, of scientific theories. And, and as I read through them, I thought, boy, we, we are smart people, but we are so dumb sometimes as well, right? We, think we, had, we, we thought we had the universe figured out with Isaac Newton and the, the laws of gravity, and we thought that we understood how the solar system kind of fit together and planetary uh, bodies moved together. But y- you know what happened? <laughs> then we went small, and we started looking inside the atom. And I read some of these theories, and, and I can't describe them very well for you this morning, but, but when you get into subatomic physics and, and quantum mechanics and physics, it just blows your mind. I mean, as you, some, of the, some of the experiments they did, I won't go into all the details, basically said you know, an electron, a particle, can be in two places at once. Two places at the same time from a human perspective. If you take 
there, then there's something called quantum entanglement, where you take uh, two particles that have been entangled in some way, and uh, as you observe one particle, it forces it to be in one state, and this other particle that it has this quantum entanglement with can be affected even if it's light years away. What? How does that work? We don't know. It's blowing people's minds, and, and these scientists are studying it, and it, it's just phenomenal stuff, right? In fact, it's, it's hard to know where science ends and science fiction begins, but they're talking about how uh, quantum entanglement, this idea of quantum entanglement could sometimes, uh, someday cause us to be teleported uh, across the galaxy. Okay, I think Jesus Christ will come back first, but the idea is this. We know, we know so little. The more we discover, the more we realize we don't know. And if it's possible that if I tinker with a particle over here, it'll cause a particle light years away to be affected, is it possible that Jesus Christ, as he nears a centurion's house, can cause something to be tinkered and a centurion's servant to be healed? I think so. We have no understanding of how great Christ is. Colossians chapter, three, or ch- Colossians chapter 1 tells us a little bit about Jesus Christ, just a little snippet here. It says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And listen to this, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus Christ. The centurion comes face to face with the idea of Christ even and says, I'm not worthy to even even contemplate him. He exalts Christ and humbles himself. You and I, as we have more revelation about the character of God and the person of God, should come to the same conclusion. I got nothing when it comes to worthiness to, uh, to even understand Christ, much less to know him. A God-pleasing faith is going to look at the universe, is going to look at relationships, is going to look at the church and say, Christ, me. Let me just give you a couple applications here as we think about exalting Christ. Three applications. As we think about being in awe of Christ. Christ exalting God-pleasing faith should, first of all, cause you to be in awe as you engage in worship, as you engage in worship. Sometimes my heart is saddened as I see my children worship. I realize I don't think there's the awe of Christ there that there needs to be. Then I realize, if that's the case, perhaps part of the reason is because I haven't conveyed the awesomeness of Christ in my worship, not just in formal times, but in informal times. Exalting Christ, a God, a Christ exalting God pleasing faith, will first of all cause us to be in awe as we engage in worship. Secondly, it will cause us to approach His His Word with with great reverence. In Isaiah sixty six. Verse 1, the Lord says, Heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build for me? Or what is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Isaiah 66, 3 says, or 66, 2 says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, exalting God. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A 
Christ-exalting, God-pleasing faith will cause us to be in awe as we engage in worship of him first. It will secondly cause us to approach his word with great reverence. A third application as we think about a Christ-exalting, God-pleasing faith is that it should cause us to fear others less. Christ-exalting, God-pleasing faith should cause us to fear others less. Habakkuk chapter 3 has kind of an interesting uh, transaction that takes place here. In verse 16, Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk seems to be a little bit cowardly. He says, I hear, and my body trembles, and my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That is, as he contemplates the majesty of God and his, his coming judgment, he, he's scared. But then look at the courage that such fear gives him. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fields, and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God-pleasing faith, Christ-exalting God-pleasing faith will cause us to be in awe as we engage in worship. It will cause us to approach his word with reverence. It will cause us to fear others less as we exalt Christ. Well, I had more that I wanted to say here. Let me just close with this idea. Jeremiah Burroughs is a Puritan writer. and He said this, he said, A heart that trembles at God's word, he's talking about Isaiah 66 too, a heart that trembles at God's word is very precious in God's eyes. And he asks the question, why is that? Why, is, why does God want us to be humble? Why does he want us to exalt Christ? And the reason is this, he says, because it's a disposition that glorifies God's word. God desires for himself to be exalted. And as he desires for himself to be exalted, the inevitable result is that we must, we must be humbled. John Calvin put it this way, he said, it's evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. How can we have a right understanding? How can we have self-knowledge of ourself? Contemplate God first. Contemplate God first, and as you contemplate God first, then turn your attention to yourself. God-pleasing faith, a God-exalting faith, is going to be a faith that causes us to be humbled and then causes us to exalt Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous faith of the centurion and how we too are called to have such faith. Uh, Father, we cannot have this faith in and of ourselves, and so we ask for you to give us this faith, that we would turn from our sin and turn to faith in you. And, and Father, I pray especially for the souls of those this morning who have not placed their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Cause them to turn from sin and turn to faith in you and cause all of us to exalt you with a faith that is humble, and exalting of you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.